Amen. talk about idols today you know we we can kind of make fun of idols we can say yeah there's a tv show on for 20 years americans american idol and we make idols out of things but billions of people believe that those idols are real billions and what we also have to do today in looking at this section of scripture is understand that Isaiah is wanting us to, wants us to understand what a delusion idols are. He wants us to understand that there is a servant king that we need to be following. And because of that servant king that we need to be following, there's a new song that should be in our hearts. If, if idols were only images or figurines or charms, uh, Isaiah's message would just kind of be uh, antique. But like I said, there's billions today that worship idols. But then we also have people today that are taking idols into their own hearts, as it says in Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 11. Idols do not have to be actual images to work their spell on us as people. They can be internalized in our hearts. If we understand that an idol is any heart-level substitute for God, then we can see that the modern world is infested with idols. In fact, John Calvin said it this way, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory is a perpetual idol factory. So idolatry is more than just a problem that we see in other faiths. It's a 
general, universal human problem. It's a modern problem. It's a Christian problem. The Old Testament repeatedly warns us against idolatry, beginning with the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. We know that warning applies to us today because in the New Testament, it says it does in 1 Corinthians 10. The New Testament says to us, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 John 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the flip side of that is a great announcement, the gospel's announcement that Paul says to us so succinctly in Colossians, Christ is your life, not those idols. And there is a reason why the Bible attacks these idols so aggressively. Christ is serious about the happiness that we have flowing from inside out. His salvation is not just a slogan. His salvation is our life. And the problem is we have a hard time believing that so many different times. And you may be saying, okay, I don't have a hard time believing that. I believe that he is my Lord and he's my Savior and he's my life. Then why do we collectively and individually run to stuff full of counterfeit pleasures, empty salvations. We need every day to taste the goodness of the Lord again, every day. And there's a reason that God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why is that first in the Ten Commandments? Because we can give ourselves to God alone. It's easier to obey the other nine commandments, quite honestly. But if we reverse that, if we open our hearts to these substitutes, these idolatrous substitutes, we will unleash all kinds of sinful impulses. And that's why the Bible says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Any source of life, any explanation of reality, any strength of life, for living that, that robs Christ of his exclusive glory in our hearts is, guess what? An idol. And it will degrade us. Our world says that the root problem is found somewhere in our society or somewhere intellectually. But our root problem in this world, in all of life, is that we keep going to false gods. We keep going to false gods for false salvations, more than, more than we realize. Our hearts complicate the simplicity of faith in God. We, we wonder why we're disappointed with life. We wonder why... Things don't seem to go the way that we want them to go. And here's what we need to see with clarity. There's only one salvation. Can you say that with me? There is only one salvation. And you guys are with me. I love it. And it belongs to Christ alone. We receive it on whose terms? His. His terms. 
and the Bible says no one has ever trusted in him in vain. And what this section of scripture does is pretty cool. Because God deliberately embarrasses the idols. He draws our attention to Jesus and he invites us to enjoy him forever. Verse 21 through 24. We we see God letting us know that these false idols, these idols are a delusion. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forth your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account. And your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Verse 1 of this chapter challenged the nations to reflect on the sovereignty sovereignty of God. Now God renews the challenge here in verse 21. And he's saying, prove you're real. Prove you're real. Now, is he really expecting the gods of the nations to make a convincing case? No, of course not. He denies their very existence, and that's the whole point. God is actually speaking to us here. He's appealing to our rationality. In fact, he's demanding our rationality into a world that has lived by pagan mumbo-jumbo For on and on and on, God introduces reason. He dares us to think by daring the idols to act. God isn't afraid of clear thinking. He's saying, think. Think, people. Because idolatry flourishes in the fog of our confusion. God helps us by daring the idols to do something godlike, to prove that they're really in charge of something, in charge of things, to be taken seriously. One version of the Bible in verse 22 says it this way, bring in your idols to tell us what is going on. He's, he, God's exposing the the unreality of salvation outside of himself. There is no salvation outside of God himself. And his dare is reasonable. It isn't unfair. It's not arbitrary. If someone's saying, I've got an idol, we should be able to say to them, does your idol do anything? Does he answer prayer? Does he act? Does he cause the mountains to tremble? The Jewish people that Isaiah is writing to are in exile in Babylon and in the Mesopotamian culture there. Fortune-telling was a well-established tradition, a major preoccupation. The Babylonians consulted their gods to interpret events, to tell them the future. 
I'll give you an example. It's kind of yucky, but this is one of the things they would do. They would take a sheep. They would open it up. They'd open the stomach up while it was still alive. And they would interpret the significance of how the intestines moved. And they would see a message from the gods in that sort of thing. So God's picking a fair fight here. These people said that their pagan gods revealed truth and predicted the future. And God is going, okay, what do the sheep guts say? It, and it's a court, right? He's saying to every rival God, okay, you have the floor. You have the floor. Go ahead, embarrass me. I dare you, but don't just sit there. Do something. Do anything. Shock us. Here's your chance to prove that you're not dead weight, that you're not just a bunch of junk sitting somewhere. Isaiah's whole point here is that sovereign foreknowledge, control over human events, is a mark of deity. If God is not the Lord of the future, then by Isaiah's logic, he's not God at all. If God is not the God of the future, he's not God at all. How many people say that God created this thing and just walked away, right? So many people, that's kind of their idea of what God is. Well, that's not God. The gospel denies that type of thing. And there's also groups of people that say that God has no idea what's going to go on in the future. Kind of an openness theology. And the gospel denies that. How many of our days are numbered by him? All of them. If all of our days are numbered, that means he knows what? Everything. He knows how it's going to end. Hold, verse 24 there. You are of no account. Another version says, behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. And anyone that chooses that is just an abomination. Idols are nothing. But they matter, don't they? Don't say idols don't matter. They do matter. Because choosing a cheap substitute for the living God cheapens us. You watch on the news every single night those dying from fentanyl and, and oxycodone and all of the different drugs that are out there all over the place. They are choosing a false God. They are choosing an idol. See, this is how it applies. And it cheapens you. It kills you. It trashes you. Drive, drive around and see the countless amount of people on the streets that are strung out. It's sad. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's read on, verse 25, before I go too far off track. 
25 through 29, God's proving his ability to activate and be in charge of history. I have aroused one from the north, and this is Cyrus that he's talking about. And he has come from the rising of the sun. He will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know, or from former times that we might say he is right? Surely there was no one who declared Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one and there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Verses 25 through 27 there predicts the rise of Cyrus the Great, proof of the sovereign deity of God. He's saying, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. The, the rise of Cyrus on the human scene actually proclaimed God's name in history in verse 25. He's like, yeah, I, I, here it is. No one saw it coming, but who? God. Ezra 1, 1 through 4 goes through what happened there, and you can look that up later to give more context for this. But God's still building this case, like everything else is a delusion. I'm in charge of history. I know what's going on. I know what's going on in your life. I know where it's heading. I know why it's heading there, and I want you to know I'm in charge, and there is hope in me and me alone. And in verses 28 and 29, as we just read, God is summarizing this whole point that there is no divine revelation outside of Him. And outside of the prophetic work of His prophets that culminate where? In Jesus Christ. The idols of our imaginations don't know what's going on. They're a delusion. In verse 29, all of them. Now, to give you an idea, in that culture, in that time, we know, outside of the Bible, that there were over 3,000 names of deities in the Mesopotamia area alone. 3,000 idols, gods. Hindu faith, depending on who you ask. Some will say, no, 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 we only have 33 gods. But then they have all of the variations within that, which actually number 330 million. And some of us kind of make fun of that sometimes. But how many idols do you have running around in your life? Well, there's only one real God. How do we know this? Well, no Christian religions hold prophecy conferences. No non-Christian religions hold prophecy conferences because there's no prophecy for them to share. 
but believers in Jesus Christ. We talk about prophecy all the time, don't we? Because we know that God has acted and will act. And he's never fallen short. And so this case is being presented. And it moves into this new zone where God says, okay, all of this is nothing. But because you guys dive into this nothingness and get stuck there, I need to once again get you out of that and focus you on what is coming. Behold my servant. Verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant who, whom I uphold, my, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed will, he will not break and a dimly burn, burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The atmosphere of the courtroom changes. Instead of controversy, we enter into this time of peace and delight and a real understatement of what's going on here. We enter into the first of Isaiah's four servant songs fulfilled in Christ. He is the servant of the Lord. He is God's alternative to our idols. He stands in contrast with Cyrus the conqueror who tramples on rulers with mortar and, and, and breaks all the clay. Cyrus stepped on people. And when Matthew quotes this text in the New Testament, he says it was fulfilled when Jesus was healing sick people. Jesus was quiet about it. He gave suffering people their lives back. And he didn't use success with them to take advantage of them or promote himself. There was no swagger, destructive swagger. There was no brutal grasping of people. He was a gentle servant and he brought forth justice to the nations. The key word in verses 1 through 4, when you dive into that and look at that in your Bible again, the word justice appears three times. What does Isaiah mean by that word translated justice there? And he's thinking more than just legal correctness. Yes, this was a courtroom of decision for them to understand, but the word is used in Exodus 26:30 of the plan for the tabernacle, the blueprint God revealed from heaven. In a similar way, what God is doing is he's giving the blueprint for human existence with Christ. He knows how human beings and how human society can be at their best. He knows how to make us happy. He knows how to make us fulfilled. And through his servant and servant alone, Jesus, he brings his plan down from heaven to reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. God's kingdom, as Jesus prays, God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And we were made for that. The word translated justice there includes within its scope all the longings for a better life and a better world. 
a just world to Isaiah is a human society as God meant it to be. Well, the only way there could be a human society as God meant it to be was it be to rewind us back to where? The garden. Which means no corrupting idols. I mentioned homeless encampments and misery and the things that we see all about in all of its forms. Do we have the prophetic eyes to discern the meaning of all of that? These, these massive disorders around us prove that we are arranging human life according to idolatrous ideas. That's what's going on. People love to use the word injustice to counter the idea of justice. Let me give you the real definition of injustice. You're not going to hear it on your favorite blog that's not from a Christian or the news or anything. According to this section here of Scripture, injustice is a spiritual evil which equals, and only it comes from this, a denial of God. When we strive to be righteous by our own human measurements, we invariably forget God's measurement. What is God's measurement? Starts with a P. Perfection. Everything else falls short. Anything less than perfection to God is a scale out of balance, as he talks about scales as well in justice. So, when anyone ever says to you, well, the world is full of injustice, we as Christians should be going, yes, every human is unjust because of the fall and the mess we've made is so far advanced so overwhelming world it's beyond our powers to correct it 300 days to have three thirty thousand new beds for homeless people will not correct this problem Yes, we should work for a better society. Yeah, Amos 5.24 talks about that. Jeremiah 29, the part of Jeremiah 29 that we never read, says that we should make our homes and gardens and plants in captivity and make the place better where we are as believers. But at the same time, we need to have the humility to face the facts and the whole sorry length of human history we as humans have failed to assemble any, any human society that ends up staying pure. Why? Sin? Greed? Every one of us. Oh yeah, there's flashes of revival and when people serve the Lord and when countries start out with their focus on, on, on a Christian nation, but what happens over time? Idols. 
and they just deteriorate the whole thing. The whole plan of humans, for the most part, well, all of our part without Christ, is self-idolization. Our salvation will never come from ourselves, will only come from the servant of the Lord. Our idolatries can do nothing but corrupt because they're a magnification of our sin inside. Good intentions end up unleashing more evil. Everything that we do outside of Christ is laced with poisons we cannot detect in time. Isaiah has eyes to see this. He also sees God's alternative, the servant, Jesus, whose salvation will prove how beautiful human life can be to the glory of God. Jesus will succeed with his gentle servanthood where we have failed with our pride. There was a person in the room with me today and we were talking about how many, too many times we go into church and we get all of the different things on how to have a better this, that, or the other thing going on in our life. But you know what we really need? Hope. Anyone else need hope? The hope of the world lies in the servant, Jesus. And he's the delight of God. He's the quiet healer. He's the man for others uh, who wields the only true power that exists, the power to reorder human civilization, not by bullying, not by suffering, not by imposing demands, not by making new laws that supposedly will make everything so much better. But he did it by absorbing our sins. Absorbing our miseries into himself. And what does it say there? And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That's Jesus. In those verses there, God presents his servant to us. In doing so, he asks us to step over a line. On this side of the line, we, may, we might appreciate Jesus. You may know some people that are not Christians that have very good things to say about Jesus. Oh, he's a great guy, right? Great guy, great teacher, taught us a lot about how we should really care and love others, right? There's, there's people that really do admire parts of his message, But God is doing so much more here. He's saying, I need you to step over a line. Because if you just appreciate Jesus and take some of what he said, that's your own terms. People don't delight in him as the savior of the world and our savior. And more than what we want to admit, too many times we may trivialize and evade him. We exalt a a, our own wisdom, our own potential. And on the other side of that line, we humble ourselves. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up. 
You see, when you step across the line of belief in Christ, you set no preconditions. You say to Jesus, you are the only hope. You are the only hope of the world, and you are my only hope. I admit my shared responsibility for the world as it is. I admit my injustice. Lord, destroy my idols. Destroy my idols. Make me the kind of person that lives up to your name. You alone are my salvation. I give my allegiance entirely to you. God wants every one of us to step over that line right now from pride to worship, from pride to worship. Will you do that? Or will you refuse Jesus? Which will it be? As we move on in verse 5, we see that God's going to discredit the idols through his servant. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives birth to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison i am the lord that is my name i will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images behold the former things have come to pass now i declare new things before they spring forth i proclaim them to you god is saying that his very reputation as God stands or falls on Jesus. The servant is doing the work of God on earth. What's the work? He is a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, it says in verse 6. God proves that he is God as Jesus delivers us from the darkness of idolatry, opens our eyes to his Glory brings us out of our self-created dungeon. Here's a question that many of you maybe have asked yourself. Can I change? Or am I stuck with who I am forever? Is this me forever? The word that we just read there says we live in dungeons but through Christ God is showing us how committed he is to us we are idolaters and he is leading us into newness he will not withdraw his covenant of grace though we often break it ourselves by attachment to other gods God will make his love known to us. He will give his glory to no others, nor his praise to our, craved, our carved idols. Sorry, He will love us until we finally get it. And he stakes his honor on that. So we are not confined to the prisons of idolatry. God saves us 
Not by telling us to lose ourselves in some vaguely defined cosmic universe or taking some yoga stance to clear our brain, but by taking upon himself at the cross all the wrongs we've done, we become new. By giving back to us our truest selves that we lost in sin. That is how God proves that he is really God. He says to you, here is new life. Enjoy. You know, what does it say there in verse 9? The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. God is proving himself here by prophecies. He's given us a verifiable short-term prediction just a little while ago by Cyrus. That happened. It's a public event in our human history. Instant credibility on the prophecy thing. But he does that to get us believing the long-term prediction of worldwide perfection through Christ. God is saying, if I kept my word about Cyrus, and I did, and you know I did, then you can believe that I'll keep my word about my servant Jesus. In fact, I launched my servant Jesus' mission 2,000 years ago. It's already underway, and it's going exactly as planned. So dump your idols. Trust in me. Be a part of my new world. That's exciting. Do any of you ever watch college football? When a team, I, I love college football. It's a whole different experience than NFL. NFL is cool, don't get me wrong. But college is just different. Because when the team scores, the band plays. And I'm a music guy. And when that team scores, the fight song happens, right? Everyone stands up and they're like, dun, 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 you know, USC guys. And people are just, it's a new, and it's like it's a new song every single time, but it's the same old song. But it's a new song every time they score. And everyone stands up and it's like the first time that all of us are screaming and shouting. When there's victory, it calls for music. And we see that here in verses 10 through 17. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You will go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities Lift up their voices, the, the settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior, and he will arouse his zeal like a man of war, and he will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies." Yeah. Sign me up for being the first guy with the trumpet right behind that. I have kept silent for a long time, verse 14. I have kept still and restrained myself. 
Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan, and I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills. And you know what? If you've ever experienced someone giving birth, I believe that they can waste the mountains and hills around them. And wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. And paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them. And rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do. And I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame. Who trust in idols? Who say to molten images, you are our gods. Isaiah is calling the whole world to join him in worshiping the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest work of grace is when unbelief falls away and our hearts melt into gladness in God. He wants everyone to be released into true worship. That is why churches have public worship services. We don't have little private secret things. We welcome the world. And we aren't the ones extending the invitation. God is. He's opened the door to idolaters from all cultures so they can experience something new. Something worthy of a new song. And the whole world is invited. God wants to and does include all people, all nations, all tongues for his glory. You know what happens in our world? I bet you any time you hear stuff going on, you, you'll hear about how divided our country is now. Right? You hear that all the time. Everything's so divided. Well, idols divide. Idols divide. That's why the world is, at a, is a place of anger and hostility today that we've not seen in so many years. Idols divide. True worship unites. True worship unites people. Wherever you see people divided, it's because they are worshiping idols. True worship unites God's people. There is nothing greater for us than to glorify and enjoy God together. And right now, the new song that is being sung is the song of Christ's church. And we're calling the nations to join us. Follow him. As he said to his disciples, he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We flip that around and say, follow him, and he will make you fishers of men. Follow him and he will make you into a unified force called the church. And we invite the world to hear our song. 
There is nothing greater for us than to glorify and enjoy God together. And right now the church is singing this new song. We're calling the nations to join us. In heaven we sing forever over the victory of God. It'll never get old. He rids the world of idol worship. We see in the last few verses there. When a sinner steps over the line from idolatry of of God plus whatever to true worship of God alone, God has fought the battle and won. God is also like that woman crying out in labor. And those, those two examples teach us that God's grace is more than a soft niceness. The grace of God is His resolve that will settle for nothing less than our eternal joy in Him alone, no matter what the cost to Himself. He will fight for your salvation. He's willing to suffer for it. I will lead the blind, he says in verse 16. If, if we can get around in our routine some, so many times without deep dependence on God, that doesn't mean we have sight. If someone you know says, I don't need God, I, I'm totally okay on my own. Blind people can be self-sufficient in familiar surroundings. But God takes us from where we are to where we need to be. And we can't get there being blind. To live free of idols is a new experience. It's a path that we do not know. God is saying, trust me enough to follow me. The greatest miracle in the universe is not when God hung the planets in space. The greatest miracle in the universe is when God transformed a compulsive idolater like you, like me, into a glad worshiper of him alone. That is a much bigger miracle. And that's the miracle we all have urgently needed, right? To love the giver more than the gifts. To see in God our only ultimate delight and, and every other happiness pales in comparison to the joy that he gives us. We enjoy him. So we don't cling to selfish gifts. If God decides to take something away, we're not devastated because we, he will never take himself away. We always have him. And that is why we worship. That's why we worship with a sense of privilege that we are actually joyful because we've come to him on his terms. And we need to open our heart to that miracle of his servant and the new song all the time famous American theologian of the past said this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God 
is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. If you trust him enough to dive into the ocean, he will make your life a story of overflowing salvation. And not only on that day when we see him, when we're all together in unity, we'll be singing a new song. But even today we're singing that song. Even today we are singing that new song, looking forward to the day when we are all with him. I encourage our music team to come up here real quick. And I thought, what better way for us to sing our way out today than to sing a new song? So we're going to sing the new song again that we taught you a little while ago. But it's that new day in Christ that we look forward to. Amen? Amen? So let's sing to him this new song. Let's stand together now.